It was September 1st, 2005 in Gulfport, Mississippi, just a few days after Hurricane Katrina tore through the Gulf Coast with winds of up to 120 miles per hour. The storm left a trail of devastation in its wake. There I was reporting in a state I had never visited before about a disaster the scale of which I could not quite put into words. As bad as it looks here in Gulfport, I'm sure you can see the devastation behind me here. It is even worse in Biloxi, Mississippi. I was 28 years old at the time. I'd been reporting for Eyewitness News in New York for almost three years. The station had sent a senior reporter to New Orleans before Katrina hit, anticipating the major issues there that would actually turn out to be even worse than people predicted. But the storm surge, the wall of water, that's the force of the historic hurricane itself, was actually worst in Gulfport and Biloxi, Mississippi. So the day after the storm, I flew down to cover the aftermath of the storm in Gulfport. It was the biggest assignment of my career, and I jumped at the opportunity. We were working around the clock. We were living in some pretty rough conditions to get stories like this one on the air. For the most part, most people are still in the dark and in the heat here in Gulfport. Still half a million people in Mississippi without power. Again, that is coming back slowly. That story that photographer Mark Abrahams and I reported on Boney Avenue in Gulfport, Mississippi, featured an interview with a homeowner named Laura Middleton. Laura and her then-husband had come back to their home, though all that was left of it was the concrete foundation, to discover that the only photo of their son was the mud-spattered class photo, you know, the ones they take at school, that was lodged in the grill of her neighbor's car where the wind had just blown it in. This is the only thing really that of his that I found. This is the only picture of your son you have. Yes. I remember that Laura was really upset that day. She was crying about the photo, but of course it was about much more than that. She was just so overwhelmed by the complete and utter devastation of her home, of her block, of her entire community. The very reason that Mark and I zeroed in on her street, let's face it, we were out-of-towners, we had no organic knowledge of the area, but we went to Boney Avenue because it was so obviously the center of the worst destruction. Homes flooded by the storm surge, battered by the wind, and in some cases, just gone. This is how Laura's neighbor, Lisa, described it to us back then. It's just overwhelming. You don't know where to begin. You know, to clean up. I mean, you just don't know. You got to dig through your stuff and see if you can find anything. More than 15 years after I interviewed her for that initial news story, I tracked down Laura Middleton to interview her for my book, More After the Break. Laura's son, the one with the class photo lodged in the grill, now owns an HVAC company, and I found him on Facebook and he connected me with his mom. I was surprised that she remembered me. I figured those days after Hurricane Katrina must have been a blur. After all, this is how I described Laura's neighborhood back in 2005. A 25-foot storm surge flattened everything, leaving nothing of this Biloxi neighborhood but a pile of rubble. Laura and her parents and grandparents had grown up in this part of Mississippi, where people understand there will be hurricanes and major storms. Laura's family always listened to the weather reports, but... They had their own forecasting method, the way they decided when it was time to evacuate. Here's how she recently explained it to me. 
we always have, you know, been through the storm. And <clears throat> my papa used to always say, put a five-gallon bucket out in the yard. And if that bucket starts floating, it's time to get out because the water would be rising. It wouldn't be from rainfall. Laura and her then-husband James knew that Katrina was going to be bad, so they evacuated with their kids to her grandfather's house in Socher that was about 30 minutes away. When Laura returned home that day, it wasn't just her son's school photo that had been tossed around. Here's how James Middleton and I described it at the scene. Katrina's winds were so violent, the contents of the Middleton's home are scattered over three miles. On the other side of I-110, I found two of my televisions. Uh, one of our couches is on the other side of I-110. The roof on the uh, one side of I-110 is there. The, I mean, it's devastating. In researching my book, Laura went into even more detail of finding her windswept belongings all over town. Can you imagine how crazy this must have been to be finding the contents of your home just randomly deposited around town? The water was so high, it was up to the bottom of the interstate on the overpass. Well, the overpass, of course, is higher than the rest of the interstate. Well, my um, my cabinet was just north of the overpass, right on the emergency lane, and it was just sitting there, standing straight up. It's like when the water came down, my cabinet just sat right on top of the ground. And I said, oh, my God, that's my cabinet. We stopped, and sure enough, all of my magnolia dishes, they're clear glass dishes that have magnolias on them, every one of them was still intact, still in the cabinet. What a surreal image, right? The household cabinet floating onto the highway with not a single broken dish. Now, you might have heard Laura there mention an overpass, the one that's part of the interstate. The water had to rise 28 feet to reach that point. It's hard to comprehend, really hard to imagine, how that much water just flooded a residential neighborhood. The house was gone. There was no house. There was right. no house. It left us. The, the mailbox was still standing, and the steps were still standing to my house. That was it. There was nothing else. It was completely gone. I remember those days back in late August of 2005. We were putting together three or four stories a day for Eyewitness News. So we needed quite a few interviews because not every story we aired could be the same. So after we interviewed Laura and her family, we let them go back to the business of sorting through what was left of their belongings. And we found the Ellis family further down Boney Avenue. Here's how I introduced them on the news that night. Jeff Ellis and his father, Glenn, are picking through what remains of their home, hoping to salvage something, anything, that survived Hurricane Katrina. It looks like a nuclear weapon was dropped here. I mean, it looks like pictures you see from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it, it is unreal. But Jeff Ellis did draw our attention that day to what he called a sign. The one item of his parents' home left standing, largely untouched, the American flag up on the flagpole. That flag standing on my house says it all. You know, I feel like I'm in hell right now, but knowing that I'm in America. In the course of researching my book, I tried reaching out to Jeffrey, at least I think it was the same Jeffrey, on LinkedIn. I never heard back from him, but I did manage to track down his brother, Glenn, who still lives in the Gulfport area. He recently recalled to me how three generations of Ellis men Jeffrey and Glenn, their father and their grandfather, 
all decided to ride out Katrina at home. It was more surreal, right? So this, we, we've lived here, my, my families have lived here um, for generations. We've weathered plenty of storms. One of the reasons why we didn't evacuate. I mean, we have, my family has several boats. And so my grandfather had a boat at the time. And so we're, we're moving boats to safe harbor really up until the last minute um, for any storm. And so we never had any intentions of evacuating. And so from that perspective, it wasn't anything that we hadn't experienced before, but it was the magnitude. It was seeing water in places that you had never, ever dreamed in your wildest dreams that it would reach that height. So despite the storm warnings, the Ellis men had no intention of evacuating. They're hunkering down. But by Monday morning, as the storm moved in with frightening intensity, even the Ellis men knew it was time to leave. The Monday morning, when the storm was at its peak, we left my cousin's house in knee-deep water. And the, the motel was, uh, it's not directly across the street, but it, it's, it's walking distance. And so we, we just went over there. And uh, it's one of these, you know, motels with exterior staircases and things of that nature. Like it's a, it's a four-story motel. It's not a big place. So we just went up the stairwell on the backside, of, you know, to get out of the wind. And that's where we stayed. By the time Glenn Ellis returned to his childhood home on Boney Avenue, there was almost nothing left except the American flag standing tall over all the destruction. You know, my parents' house, there was nothing but a concrete slab. So, you know, we, we had found a few things in the front yard that didn't float off, you know, whether it was um, a few pieces of china that wasn't broken or, you know, I think we found a set of golf clubs. <laughs> a couple of fishing poles. Mark and I finished our interviews that day on Boney Avenue. We got our video from that overwhelming scene and we left to go cover other aspects of the disaster. On that reporting trip, we were sleeping in the rental car at first and then we upgraded, if you could call it that, to a hotel with no water or power. Eventually, we moved to a hotel an hour away in Mobile, Alabama, which was the closest place we could find air conditioning and hot food. A few days after that, we left to go back home to New York and New Jersey. We didn't cover much of the long-term aftermath of the storm. And that's when Glenn said homeowners started getting really angry when many people, including Glenn's parents, were informed they would not be covered for their losses. You know, some people had the logic of why would you buy flood insurance if there's historically <laughs> you've never been close to floodwaters. but the aftermath shows how high the water got and that there were no homes left. So the assumption was made by the insurance companies that the water had done the damage. When in fact, that wasn't the case in every scenario. So it was actually wind and tornadoes that had taken some houses where people had insurance policies to cover that. Glenn's parents, like so many other people in the neighborhood, wound up selling their property instead of rebuilding. There was talk of a casino, but the land still sits vacant. And it wasn't just the buildings that were lost that day. Some of the sense of community, the sense of security, was washed away too. You walked out the door and saw your aunt and uncle every day, as well as my, my mom seeing her brother, right? And so 
um, it just, it was different. As for Laura and her family, they lived in FEMA trailers before selling their property and moving to another home nearby. Laura says she still drives around Gulfport and Biloxi, remembering the homes and businesses and landmarks that were there before Katrina, a sort of ghost town in her imagination. But she and her family have deep roots here, and they chose to stay. You don't just walk out. I mean, you know, we've been through this so many times. Um, I mean, I'm not afraid of a hurricane. I'm really not. Um, now, my friend Beth, she is terrified. And she's in Arizona. I said, come on, Beth, just move down, back down. Laura, I can't handle it. I can't do it. You know this. I said, my God, all you got to do is pack up and go. She says, no, I can't. I can't see the devastation after a hurricane. Covering severe weather events like hurricanes, snowstorms, floods, and tornadoes is an essential part of local news coverage and certainly part of my job that people ask me about the most, especially the snow coverage that everyone seems to watch when they're snowed in at home and us reporters and photographers are out reporting on the storm for hours. The one constant with all of these weather events is that as much as we can show you on TV or tell you about in this podcast, we can never adequately describe the massive scope of the destruction. In the case of Katrina, the miles and miles of shattered neighborhoods and ruined homes and the years of heartache and resilience that followed. Laura and Glenn's stories and the stories of other survivors of Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy are featured in Chapter 2 of my book, More After the Break. Until next time, I'm Jen Maxfield. Thanks for listening to More After the Break. I'm Jen Maxfield, and I hope you will subscribe and keep listening. More After the Break, find us wherever you get your podcasts.